Previously on Breakdown. That woman, what could have taken those ballots out? Look at them scurrying around with the ballots. Nobody in the room, hiding around. They look like this. They look like they're passing out dope. But if we narrow down to the particulars of what I understand the DA to be looking into, which is, you know, whether there's any criminal or illegal conduct, uh, you know, I, I don't even think it's really close, to be fair. It's possible if the DA, I believe she's already indicated she is looking into the allegations of fake electors, it's possible that anybody involved in that particular scheme could also be investigated and potentially charged under this criminal solicitation felony statute. We've laid out many of the state laws Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis could consider as she decides whether to press charges against Donald Trump and his allies for their conduct in Georgia following the 2020 election. But to prove that any of their behavior was criminal, prosecutors must show criminal intent, that Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and others knew that what they were doing was illegal and that they meant to break the law. And that's not easy. This is Season 9, Episode 4 of Breakdown, the Trump Grand Jury, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Breakdown the podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that covers Georgia's most important cases. We're following the Trump grand jury in Fulton County. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the AJC. I'm Tamar Hallerman. I covered the Trump presidency from our Washington bureau and am now closely following the special purpose grand jury. Legal experts are divided on whether the intent was there. And somewhat surprisingly, it's not one of those matters that falls neatly along party lines. Here's Don Samuel, Breakdown's resident legal expert. He says he disagrees with about 90% of what Trump did as president, but he also says this about the January 2nd phone call. When he said, find me 11,800 votes, people think that is a clear indication of an inducement to falsify the election results by 11,800 votes. Maybe that's what he meant. But that's not what the words are. What the words are, given all the fraud that has been reported, given all the mistakes that have been reported, and just errors in tabulations and absentee ballots that shouldn't have been counted for Biden or maybe were thrown out that shouldn't have been thrown out for Trump, just dig and see if you can find those, you know, enough votes to make up the difference. I don't think that's a crime. It's only if you would use the interpretation that what he meant It's unequivocal that what he meant in this phone call was, I want you to falsify the results. I don't, I'm not convinced that that's what he meant by that. Samuel spoke with us before he was hired by the state legislature to represent its members in the Fulton DA's inquiry. 
Listen, I don't want to defend him. I don't want to be in the position of saying he's as innocent as the, you know, as the driven snow. I, 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 I understand that he, his behavior is absolutely reprehensible. But there's a difference between being immoral, amoral, reprehensible, and being a criminal. And proof beyond a reasonable doubt requires more than, well, don't you think that's what he meant? He brings up an important point. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt is the highest burden of proof. If an indictment is handed up, the prosecution must convince 12 jurors that the standard has been met to obtain a conviction. But for Samuel, there's an even bigger issue than guilt or innocence. And for some reason, you know, people who are urging Fonnie Willis to indict want 12 people to decide this question? Randomly selected 12 people in Fulton County? Is, is that really the way we should decide what to do with the fate of, a, of an ex-president? You know, it's a slippery slope, and it's, and it's a really dangerous thing to deal with politics through the criminal justice system, in my opinion. So chew on that for a while. For better or worse, this political mess is now a criminal investigation. As we said, in these kinds of cases, prosecutors will have to prove there was criminal intent. It's called mens rea, which is Latin for guilty mind. Many say this is Trump's best defense, that he genuinely believed there was fraud, and that he wasn't asking Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to do anything illegal. He was simply asking him to do his job. I think it's really about intent. This is Andrew Fleischman. He's a criminal defense lawyer in Atlanta, and like Samuel, no fan of Trump. People have looked also at the the fraud statute, but again, fraud requires knowing falsity. If I sell you something that I believe will cure your headaches, uh, and it doesn't, it's not fraud. We're, we just both got duped. Uh, and here, the president's saying, oh, there's 5,000 dead people voting. I mean, he's, he's still saying it. He certainly hasn't stopped. He's never made an admission that is not true. I don't know what you would throw back at him to say, oh, you know, he's a hypocrite. He doesn't really believe these things. He is very good at believing things that are beneficial to him. <laughs> and it's a great talent. Donald Trump says crazy things, and that makes him bulletproof. It means that uh, he so routinely says those things and so routinely seems to believe them. There's a book that came out, what, last week about how he thought China was shooting us with hurricane guns? There's a magic marker on a map where he thought that a hurricane was going to reach out to Alabama. He had to draw it on because he was so sure that was true. So you want me to believe beyond a reasonable doubt that Donald Trump couldn't believe a crazy thing? I've got doubt. Marcy McCarthy, chair of the DeKalb County GOP, is a fan of the former president. She says there was no wrongdoing. I've listened to the call. I've listened to all the calls. I've read the transcripts because, quite frankly, I was quite curious myself. I am a Trump supporter, but I saw nothing wrong in the call. Atlanta lawyer Randy Evans was Trump's ambassador to Luxembourg. He also served on the Georgia Board of Elections. He says it was not unusual for losing candidates and campaign managers to come in and lodge allegations of fraud. And, on occasion, authorities would find it. Evans says he doesn't oppose the special grand jury investigation. He says if there are questions, get them answered. But he doesn't see it going anywhere. And so, as a practitioner, I'd have to say, I am always in favor of fleshing it out and taking a look. So when people say to me, you know, we've got a grand jury, but it doesn't have indictment power, taking a look to make sure, uh, you know, grand juries should take a look at anything where there are questions. 
both sides of the issue. Um, do I think there's any reasonable basis upon which uh, an indictment could be made in the district attorney's discretion? No, I really don't. I, having looked at the statements from everybody on the call, it'd be pretty hard pressed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that there was some suggestion that uh, anybody was calling on illegal conduct because it's not, we all agree there's nothing wrong with asking for legal uh, remedies, right? right? Like, like it's like, well, I want another recount or I want this or I want that. There's nothing wrong with that. The question is, was there ever a suggestion that the intent was to uh, fabricate a ballot, fabricate a review, fabricate a finding of fraud, fabricate any of that. And there's, everybody agrees that I've seen that nobody, nobody thought that. They felt the pressure. Everybody feels pressure when you've got uh, candidates in high places making a phone call to you. Uh, but I don't think there was any suggestion that, uh, that there was, I, we want you to go, we want you to go make stuff up. Evan says there's also the fact that even after Trump pushed him, Raffensperger didn't do anything to change the election results. I think that candidates trying to get reelected uh, are typically going to bring as much force to bear as they can. And the best example that it wasn't is that it didn't work. I mean, even if you believed the most extreme, you, you thought, OK, he's totally crossed the line. That would be that would be largely rebutted by the fact that Raffensperger didn't do anything, or he did things, but he didn't he didn't do you know what people were suggesting that Trump was asking him to do. On June nineteenth, Trump's Save America PAC circulated a social media post from the former president. It was in response to the most recent hearings by the Select Committee investigating the January sixth riot. Trump repeated what he had previously said about his phone call to Raffensperger. He said, quote, My phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State, with many other people, including numerous lawyers, knowingly on the line, was absolutely perfect and appropriate. Yes, it was a perfect call. In a separate post, Trump accused the committee of trying to create a fake narrative that he knew he lost the election. Trump said he believed from the beginning the election was rigged and stolen, and his belief has only gotten stronger since then. Also, in the months leading up to the election, Trump was saying if he were to lose, it would be because of fraud. Here he is in Oshkosh, Wisconsin in August 2020. The only way we're going to lose this election is if the election is rigged. Remember that. It's the only way we're going to lose this election. So we have to be very careful. And here he is addressing his supporters in the early morning hours after Election Day. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. We did win this election. But prosecutors, no doubt, will show that Trump, in the lead up to the Raffensperger call, was told over and over that there was no widespread fraud in the election especially nothing on the scale that would overturn Georgia's results, and by asking for election officials to find a different, more favorable result, he knew he was asking for something illegal. Here's what Trump knew. 
Shortly after the election, the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency issued a statement. It says there's no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised. Here's Chris Krebs, who headed the agency. On November 12, 2020, government and industry representatives from the election security community issued a joint statement reflecting a consensus perspective that the 2020 election was the most secure in U.S. history. On November 17th, Krebs tweets about allegations that election systems were manipulated. He says election security experts agree, quote, in every case of which we are aware, these claims either have been unsubstantiated or are technically incoherent. Later that day, Trump sends out his own tweet. He says Krebs had been fired. What follows are accounts of what happens over the next few days from former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr. We're going to intersperse some of his testimony before the Select Committee investigating the January 6th riot with what he wrote in his book, One Damn Thing After Another. On November 23rd, Barr comes to the Oval Office. Trump and Mark Meadows are there. Trump continues to insist there had been major fraud, and he says once the facts are out, the results of the election will be reversed. The president also tells Barr that apparently the Justice Department doesn't think it has a role in looking into the fraud claims. I said, you know, that has to be the campaign that raises that with the state. The department doesn't take side in elections and the department is not an extension of your legal team. Uh, and our role is to investigate fraud. And if and we'll look at something, if it's specific, credible and could have affected the outcome of the election. And, and we're doing that. And it's just not meritorious. They're not panning out. As Barr leaves the Oval Office, he runs into Jared Kushner, the president's advisor and son-in-law. And I said, uh, how, long is, how long is he going to carry on with this uh, stolen election stuff? Where is this going to go? And by that time, uh, Meadows had caught up with me, leaving the office, and caught up with me and, and said, he said, look, I, I, I think uh, that he's becoming more realistic and knows that a limit to how far he can take this. And then Jared said, you know, yeah, we're working on this. We're working on it. Barr says matters deteriorated over the next six days. Then, on November 29th, Trump appears on the Fox News show Sunday Morning Futures. This election was over, and then they did dumps. They call them dumps, big, massive dumps in Michigan and Pennsylvania and uh, uh, all over. Uh, How the FBI and Department of Justice, I don't know, maybe they're involved. But how people are allowed to get away from this stuff with this stuff is unbelievable. Barr says, I felt like I couldn't stay quiet after hearing that. This got on my skin, but I also felt it was time for me to say something. So on, I had I set up a, a lunch with the AP reporter, Mike Balsamo, and I told him at lunch, uh, I made the statement that to date we have not seen fraud on a scale that could have affected a different outcome in the election. Barr has a previously scheduled meeting that afternoon at the White House. He says as is leaving, he tells his secretary he was probably going to be fired. I said, you might have to pack up for me. At the White House, Barr is in a meeting when he gets word Trump wants to see him. He's escorted to Trump's private dining room just outside the Oval Office. And the president was as mad as I've ever seen him, and he was trying to control himself. And the president said, well, this is, you know, killing me. Uh, You didn't have to say this. You must have said this because you hate Trump. You hate Trump. 
Barr writes that he told Trump the Justice Department was not an extension of the president's legal team. Quote, Our mission is to investigate and prosecute actual fraud. The fact is, we've looked at the major claims your people are making, and they are BS. Barr wrote that when he offered to resign, Trump slammed his palm on the table and said, accepted. But White House aides ran down Barr before his car left the White House grounds and told him Trump didn't mean it. Still, Barr would resign 22 days later. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. We also need to make note of another passage in Barr's book. He recounts a conversation he had with his friend, White House lawyer Eric Hirschman, after the election. Barr says, quote, Jesus, Eric, we're just not seeing the evidence of widespread fraud, and I'm worried how far the president is taking this stolen election stuff. According to Barr, Hirschman responds by saying, There's a group of outsiders like Giuliani and his crew who are hammering away nonstop to Trump about all the evidence of fraud. Quote, they are telling him what he wants to hear, and they are so categorical about the facts that he is disposed to believe them. Barr then tells Hirschman the evidence of fraud Trump's lawyers have come up with was nonsense. Hirschman responds by telling Barr he was pushing back against the fraud claims. He says he told the president, quote, evidence the election was stolen in the sense they're saying hasn't been produced. Barr also writes that after the election, Trump was, quote, beyond restraint. He would only listen to a few sycophants who told him what he wanted to hear. Reasoning with him was hopeless. Here's what Barr told the January 6th committee about how he felt after having another conversation with Trump almost two weeks later. Barr said that once again, Trump had gone off, saying there was now definitive evidence of fraud. I was somewhat demoralized because I thought, boy, if he really believes this stuff, he has become detached from reality, if he really believes this stuff. On the other hand, you know, when I went into this and would, you know, tell him how crazy some of these allegations were, there was never an indication of interest in what the actual facts were. Barr made it clear to the select committee that on more than one occasion, he told Trump There was nothing behind the fraud claims. This was released during the first primetime hearing on June 9th. Here's Liz Cheney of Wyoming setting it up. President Trump's Attorney General Bill Barr also told Donald Trump his election claims were wrong. Repeatedly told the president in no uncertain terms uh, that uh, I did not see evidence of fraud. and, uh, you know, that would have affected the outcome uh, of the election. And frankly, a year and a half later, I haven't seen anything to, to change my mind on that. Even the president's daughter, Ivanka, believed what Barr had determined. How did that affect your perspective about the election when Attorney General Barr made that statement? It affected my perspective. Um, I respect Attorney General Barr. Um, so I accepted what he said, was saying. 
Jason Miller, a senior Trump campaign spokesman, also testified before the January 6th committee. Here he is describing a phone call he arranged with Trump and the president's own internal data expert. I was in the Oval Office, um, and at some point in the conversation, Matt Oskowski, who is the lead data person, was brought on. And I remember he delivered to the president pretty blunt terms uh, that he was going to lose. And that was based... Uh, Mr. Miller, on Matt and the data team's assessment of the sort of county-by-county, state-by-state results as reported? Correct. And then there's Alex Cannon. He was one of the Trump campaign's lawyers. One of his responsibilities was to assess allegations of election fraud in the weeks after the election. Here's what he told the January 6th committee about a conversation he had with White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. I remember a call with uh, Mr. Meadows, where Mr. Meadows was asking me what I was finding and if I was finding anything. And I remember sharing with him that we weren't finding anything that would be sufficient to um, change the results in any of the key states. When was that conversation? Probably in November, mid to late November. I think it was before my child was born. And what was Mr. Meadows' reaction to that information? I believe the words he used were, so there's no there there. So we think it's important to consider all this context. Through first-person accounts, from Trump's own appointees, aides, and lawyers, and how it may or may not show criminal intent down here in Georgia. What did the president know? What did he really believe? An even more unsettling question? Was he of sound mind? There are also the two recounts in Georgia, one by hand and both overseen by Republican officials, that reaffirmed Trump's defeat. And the multiple lawsuits filed by the president's allies were thrown out of court. The claims of fraud were also investigated by Trump's U.S. attorney in Atlanta, B.J. Pack. This includes Giuliani's allegations that suitcases of ballots were counted illegally on election night in Atlanta's State Farm Arena. Pack testified about this before the Select Committee on June 13th. He said in early December 2020, Attorney General Barr asked him to look into Giuliani's allegations concerning the State Farm Arena video. Here's Pack. Unfortunately, during the Senate hearing, Mr. Giuliani only played a clip that showed them pulling out the official ballot box from under the table and referring to that as a smoking gun of fraud in Fulton County. But in actuality, in review of the entire video, it showed that that was actually an official ballot box that would kept underneath the tables. And then we saw them pack up because the announcement that they thought they were done for the night. And then once the announcement was made that you should continue counting, they brought the ballot back back out and they continued to count. We interviewed, the FBI interviewed the individuals that are depicted in the the videos. It purportedly were double, triple counting of the ballots and determined that Nothing irregular happened in the county, and the allegations made by Mr. Giuliani uh, were false. The January 6th committee also released audio of statements made by Richard Donahue, who became acting deputy U.S. attorney general when Barr resigned on December 23rd. He says he told Trump exactly what PAC and the FBI had found. I told the president myself that several times in several conversations that these allegations about ballots being smuggled in 
in the suitcase and run through the machine several times, it was not true. That we looked at, we looked at the video, we interviewed the witnesses, it was not true. In his book, Barr writes that he had told the president the same thing. Barr also writes that he told Trump he thought the president's legal team at the time was a clown show. Pack is a former state legislator. He resigned two days after the January 2nd phone call, when the president called him a never-Trumper. But nobody can make a case for that, Brett. Nobody. I mean, look, thats you'd have to be a child to think anything other than that. Just a child. I mean, you have your never-Trumper attorney there. Pack would later testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee that he stepped down after being told that Trump wanted him out immediately. Trump surprises many by bypassing the prosecutor next in line at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Atlanta. Instead, he assigns Bobby Christine, the U.S. attorney in Savannah, to take over the Atlanta office and investigate the fraud claims. But it doesn't take long for Christine to conclude there was nothing to them. And he tells his office just that in a virtual meeting. Our colleague, the AJC's Chris Joyner, obtained a recording of that meeting. Here is Christine. But I say this not out of self-aggrandizement. I say it to you to hopefully bring some comfort to you, but also because I'm frustrated. I would love to stand out on the street corner and scream this, and I can't. But I can tell you, I closed the two most, I I, I don't know, I guess you call them high-profile, or two most pressing election issues this office has. I said, I believe, as many of the people around the table believe, There's just nothing to them. There's no there there. Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis has indicated that the circumstances surrounding PAC's sudden departure as U.S. attorney will be part of the special purpose grand jury investigation. And PAC spoke to Fulton prosecutors earlier this spring. Now let's go back to the January 2nd phone call. Some will say that Trump should have known better, that dictating to states what they should do with their own election results was off limits. Here's George Washington University public interest law professor John Banshaf. The test is whether Trump had the intent to interfere with the election. The, the, the particular statutes are conspiracy to commit election fraud, criminal solicitation, that I think is important, to commit election fraud, and intentional interference with past performance of election duties. So the question is whether or not Trump intended to intimidate, whether it was seen as a threat. And again, I think the language is so clear and specific and unambiguous that you don't have to read into it. Banzaf also cites a pattern of incidents designed to overturn Georgia's election results. There are Trump's calls to Secretary of State Investigator Francis Watson and to Governor Brian Kemp. There's Giuliani appearing before the legislative committees. There's also Senator Lindsey Graham's phone call to Brad Raffensperger. And then there were, I believe, calls by uh, one or two other people acting on Trump's behalf to various people down in Georgia. So this shows a concerted effort. This wasn't a one-time, one thing that Trump happened to do one afternoon and then gave up on. This shows several different attempts, both by Trump and by people working with him, to try to affect the outcome of the election. I don't think it could be any clearer. The more different pieces of evidence a prosecutor has pointing in the same direction makes it much more difficult for the defendant to deny. And speaking of intent, here's Gwen Keyes Fleming, the former Georgia district attorney and co-author of the Brookings Institute report. You know, again, I think one of the things we need to realize is the president, the former president may very likely uh, try to raise a defense that 
the fraud existed, that he had the, the belief that there was fraud and he was acting on that belief. And there's various other defenses that he could also use for any of these crimes. Uh, but the law is clear that even if he thought he was doing the right thing, you cannot violate the laws to be able to achieve that objective. Uh, so, I, and I'm quite sure the DA will have case law that relates to that. She will no doubt, if it gets to an indictment, gets to any type of trial, she will have an instruction, ask that the judge give an instruction in that regard to any potential jury if one is impaneled. One of Key's co-authors on the Brookings Report is Norm Eisen, a former ambassador who served as co-counsel to the House Judiciary Committee during Trump's first impeachment trial. He doesn't buy this defense if it's used. I don't personally, I don't accept at face value bar Trump's professions that they actually believe this. I think the evidence points to, including, you know, with many, many people coming and telling Trump, this is BS, there was no fraud, you did not win this election. The evidence points to this being the latest uh, self-serving prevarication by Trump as opposed to something he actually believed. And I think a jury will not accept um, will not accept his totally unfounded claims. That is, if the case ever gets before a jury, we have no idea if District Attorney Willis will even seek an indictment. But if she does, the question of criminal intent will be something for the jury to decide. Here's Don Samuel. Mens rea is not really a defense pre-trial. That's really a trial defense. That's a jury issue. Did he intend to commit the crime is not something you can raise in a pre-trial motion. There's no summary judgment in a criminal case. You know, if it alleges a crime, you go to trial. But in the meantime, there are a number of defenses Trump and his allies can use to either get the case dismissed altogether or knock it off its tracks. One is to do everything they can to stymie the special purpose grand jury's proceedings. Here's former Georgia District Attorney Danny Porter predicting what could happen. You know, everything that he's, whether it's the Manhattan DA's office or whether it's the January 6th committee or whoever ends up investigating him, or even in the civil cases he's been involved with over the years, his whole strategy that he's developed pretty successfully over the years is you know, stall, 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 not deflect, I would say distract as much as possible. And, you know, hopefully you can keep that up until you've just buried the real issues. Even Willis sees that coming. I expect uh, lawyers that defend uh, potential defendants to do all that they can to slow the prosecutor. Cade Perrion, a West Georgia attorney who chairs the Republican Trial Lawyers Caucus, makes another point. Trump has unlimited amounts of money. Fulton County does not. Fannie Willis is the steward of, you know, the taxpayers' money. So, you know, the Trump legal team, in their defense, and and this is perfectly legal, you know, they're going to do everything they can to make sure that, you know, justice moves at the speed of a tortoise walking backwards. Okay, and how many times have you seen a tortoise walk backwards? Okay, uh, but that's that's what's going to happen. Um, they're going to use all their resources to slow this down as much as possible, so that you know nothing comes of it, probably, or 
you know, they're past the 2024. I mean, we've seen the same thing with the, the tax records in New York. I mean, they've been we've been hearing about Donald Trump's tax records since the day he took office. So how exactly do delays help Team Trump? Well, look what happened with the with the whole tax thing in New York City. Okay, we ha- we have a DA turnover in New York City, and suddenly the new DA is not as interested in the Trump investigation as as the former DA. You know, one thing with big metropolitan cities. Uh, and counties such as Fulton County is, there's always going to be opposition within a political party. So Fonnie Willis is going to have opposition in 2024. There's no doubt in my mind. Does the cost of this investigation become fodder for that political you know, stump speech for the opponent? Okay, let's look at how much the, the Donald Trump investigation has cost Fulton County. Okay, let's look at how many people were murdered in Fulton County. You know, so there's a there, there's there's some play there for Trump and his team. Uh, but honestly, I think the the end all be all for them is just to you know keep everything locked away in the suitcase. <laughs> Trump and others involved could also fight subpoenas seeking documents or testimony in a number of ways. Here's Don Samuel again. Yeah, if they call him Mark Meadows, he can insist on executive privilege, um, maybe successfully, maybe not successfully, probably not. Um, some of the lawyers could claim attorney-client privilege. Giuliani would certainly claim attorney-client privilege. So there's lots of privileges that can be asserted at the grand jury. There's not a whole lot more you can do at the grand jury for a target to do at the grand jury. Witnesses at the grand jury can raise all kinds of challenges. Trump could also raise a First Amendment defense. Here's DeKalb County GOP Chairwoman Marcy McCarthy. Why can't the President of the United States have a call with the Secretary of State and his staff to ask questions? And to be prosecuted for such a thing, for simply asking questions, is quite frankly a violation of freedom of speech. Attorney Andrew Fleischman says she has a point. People all over the country are soliciting their elected officials to do exactly this for exactly the same reasons. They are calling up their congressmen or calling up their secretary of state and saying there's been fraud and you need to do something and they're picketing and they're demonstrating and all that stuff is just kind of classic protected speech because even if you're promoting terrible ideas, we typically protect those ideas. Even if your idea is that we should get rid of the constitution and uh, no free speech for anybody, if that's what you're saying, you are protected in saying it. So here is Donald Trump. He's arguably petitioning a person in government to do the same thing that millions of other Americans are petitioning him to do. And how do you draw a distinction between those things? Really, I think the only way you could is by saying he has knowledge of falsity. And how do you prove that man knows or doesn't know a thing? This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Another line of defense could be raised if there's an actual indictment. It involves a little-known quirk in the law. That is... If a current or former federal official is indicted in a state court, that person can ask for the case to be moved to federal court. So Trump could ask his case be removed from the Superior Court in Fulton County and docketed in the U.S. District Courthouse in downtown Atlanta, just a few blocks away. And that would open up a whole can of worms. Hey, if you're a federal officer and you said you were doing something under federal law, then we can remove that. 
And there's a hearing that happens within like 30 days where the federal court decides whether to keep you, but the standard is really low. Here again is Atlanta attorney Andrew Fleischman. Like, basically the only time someone lost this was the U.S. Supreme Court, some post office workers got like traffic tickets, and there that got rejected. It's not like really a colorable federal claim. But yeah, the president is going to claim that he was trying to enforce some sort of federal law. And then the only question is, is it colorable? And what does he mean by colorable? Colorable means like plausible, just barely plausible, but just something that you can say with a straight face. And he could, could he say with a straight face he was trying to ensure election integrity in his capacity as a federal officer? And if he happens to, uh, and he doesn't have to show that he'll win on it either. He just has to say that there is a defense that exists to get federal removal. Fleischman says such a removal changes the judges who would preside over the case. It could also produce delays with appeals as to whether the case should remain in Fulton County. Defense attorney Don Samuel says perhaps the most important advantage for Trump, if he's indicted and if his case is removed to federal court, would be the jury pool, also called the veneer. Like we've said, Fulton County is overwhelmingly Democratic. President Joe Biden got almost 73% of the vote there in 2020. So moving the case to the federal court's Atlanta division means that jurors will be summoned from Fulton and nine other counties, some with Republican strongholds. It's also entirely possible, because of immense publicity, that jurors would be summoned from the entire northern district of Georgia, not just the 10 counties in the Atlanta division. The northern district is composed of 46 counties. Culling jurors from such a large area was recently done during the federal hate crimes trial of the three men convicted of the murder of Ahmad Arbery. Jurors were not summoned from just the seven-county Brunswick division. They were summoned from all 43 counties that make up the Southern District of Georgia. If this were to happen in Trump's case, it could be a game changer. Here's Don Samuel again. You would probably have a district-wide veneer which means you would get Rome, Georgia, if you know what I mean. Rome, Georgia. That would be in the heart of the 14th Congressional District that's represented by ultra-conservative Marjorie Taylor Greene. And you would get Gainesville. You would get uh, just this side of Athens. Dalton. You would get Dalton. You would get uh, right down to uh, Coweta County, just north of the, you know, Muskogee County. So... Fulton and DeKalb and Cobb and Gwinnett are all included, but so are a lot of other counties where it's not even close to being 50-50. So you're going to get more Republicans. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Remember, all 12 jurors would have to agree unanimously for a charge to stick. Still, Samuel also thinks that getting a case removed to federal court might not be a slam dunk. That's what is confusing to me about the removal issue is the removal statute says you have to be acting in the course of your official duties. It is conceivable to me that the response would be, you know, when you're out on a, you know, on a platform urging people to vote for you, that's not your presidential duty. That's your campaigning <laughs> role, which is different than, um, you know, your official acts. So it would be a fight. But Obviously, there's all kinds of hurdles the prosecution would have to overcome with prosecuting an ex-president. I mean, there's, it, it wouldn't surprise me if that ends up in the United States Supreme Court before it ever ends up in a courtroom. Norm Eisen, one of the co-authors of the Brookings Report, thinks there will be an indictment. I think the courts, judges, juries, 
when and if it reaches that phase. And of course, that'll be up to the DA, the special grand jury. If the special grand jury makes a recommendation, the regular grand jury to accept that recommendation and charge Trump. I think that's coming. The greater likelihood is that's coming. And then they'll have to decide these questions. I don't think they're going to buy it. And so I don't believe that those uh, defenses will prevail in the end. It's not a slam dunk, right? I mean, you got to fight on your hands. That's why Alvin Bragg, in my view, that's likely why the Manhattan DA backed out. I don't think that DA Willis will be so weak. As we mentioned in an earlier episode, it's been more than a year since DA Willis launched her investigation. Professor Banzaf, who filed the complaint against Trump, is unconcerned with the slow pace of the prosecution. I'm not worried that Willis seems to be taking so much time with this. This is obviously a tremendously important case. It is one where there are no clear precedents, as as we have in in 99% of the cases that she prosecutes. You have that old uh, adage that when you strike the king, you had better better be careful that that, uh, it is effective. So I think any wise prosecutor going after somebody like Trump, a former president, who has tremendous amount of money, who has a tremendous amount of clout in the Republican Party particularly, is going to want to take all the time they possibly can to get her ducks in a row to make sure that every little bit of evidence comes out. Next on Breakdown, the special purpose grand jury has gone into overdrive. The Supreme Court said that there could be no questioning of a senator or his aide except as it proves relevant to investigating possible third-party crime, possible third-party crime, concerning any act in itself, not criminal, performed by the senator or by his aides in the course of their employment in preparation for the subcommittee hearing. As always, thank you so much for listening. We will continue to drop an episode every week over the next few weeks. Then we'll come back from time to time whenever major news breaks in this story. And I think you can count on that happening. You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com. And if you really want to support local journalism, particularly our journalism, please subscribe to the AJC. Be safe and take care. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. I'm Tamar Hallerman. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.